Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. In the world of Gunhild Oyahog's fiction, the mechanics of the short story are constantly being pulled apart and played with. Characters we've followed on a bus turn out to be the inventions of the narrator on page four. An omniscient analysis department argues with the author about the validity of a story ending. Baudelaire's Flowers of Evil turns out to be real flowers growing by the side of the road and the cause of a woman's broken foot. But the magic of Oyahog's latest collection, Evil Flowers, translated from the Norwegian by Carrie Dixon, is how these subversions still manage to awaken us to the wonder of real, ordinary, corporeal life. Whether our main character is a loner searching for connection on a travel forum, or a girl who turns everything she touches into slime eels. Gunhild Oyahog is an award-winning Norwegian poet, essayist, and fiction writer whose work has been published in English by FSG since 2017 and is translated into English by Kari Dixon. Gunhild Oyahog joins us today from Bergen. Thanks so much for talking to me, Gunhild. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, so I want to start by asking you kind of a, a big maybe unfair question, which is, how do you figure out what's a short story, what's a very short story, and what's going to be a novel, or like an essay, or not even worth publishing at all? (laughs) Oh, well, um, I don't think I ever decide on the last one, something that's never going to be published. I think I just collect it, and I think, oh, I'll use it later. And I have material on my computer, which is probably... 20 years of age (laughs) that I'm probably never going to use but um, so but the difference between the short story and the um, and the novel is I think I've written three short stories uh, collections and three novels and I think with at least two of my novels I thought they were going to be short stories and they started out as a situation with a character and I it was kind of tugging at it and I didn't manage to write it and and in both cases I suddenly realized it was because the material was just too big for the short format and so so it was kind of um, breaking out of the form before I'd even started it so and that was very intriguing the first time I wrote a novel when when I realized oh I am actually going to have to write a novel now I thought I was just going to write short stories (laughs) for the rest of my life Um, because I've feel that I am a bit impatient and wasn't cut out for the larger formats. With the second novel, I was a bit frustrated when I realized that the material was too big for a short story <laughs> because I just, I could remember it so vividly how, I mean, how frustrating and terrible the novel had been at, at times. Um, I did it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and with the third novel, I, I kind of recognized immediately that this was a novel and I just accepted my fate (laughs) and wrote it and that was present tense machine but with a short story it's just um, every time I start writing a piece of fiction there's a voice talking and it is that voice that is um, interesting to me and very often with my short stories the voice tends to be a bit exaggerated and Usually, I sometimes picture my my characters as if they've taken this little box um, and placed themselves upon it, just to kind of get 
a little bit of height and then they start talking uh, about whatever it is that they have to say. Um, so there's a slight exaggeration in the position that they are standing in, in, if you know what I mean. And they have, and that is interesting to me. I mean, why do you need to talk about this? <laughs> and then I just kind of try to figure out what they are thinking. What I love about your fiction is the characters are always very real. Like I always get the sense that it's it's a very strong voice. But, you know, there's less characterization necessarily. It's not like so-and-so is a bus driver or so-and-so mm. is a person who's waiting mm. to get the bus and they're very annoying. And if they mm. ever are, you immediately unravel that and sort of poke at mm. the idea of characterization at all. Can mm. you talk a little bit more about that, you know, and, and maybe why that was hard for you in a novel form where you kind of maybe need that? Oh, <laughs> I think... Characterization for me is a huge problem um, because I have difficulties in believing that this character has brown hair and brown eyes. I think she has letters for hair and letters for eyes. I mean, I, I love the feeling of being kind of um, immersed in a story and to kind of forget where I am. But at the same time, I think it's um, it's something I usually I want to make um, visible to the reader that this is a novel and this is a piece of fiction to kind of question uh, how we judge and how we make um, judgments on both literary characters and, and each other. Um, but when I was writing my first novel, um, I was trying to write it like a, in, a, in two sections where I had an Im I imagined that the first part of the novel would be an essay um, and where the characters would be only um, recognized by their thoughts, um, not by their looks or or backgrounds or whatever. Um, and then I was I imagined that in the second part of the novel they would kind of slide slowly into their physical form and have fingers and eyes and hair and and all the stuff that we usually have. Um, but it didn't it didn't work out, and my editor was. Uh, asking me these horrible questions like, but who is she? <laughs> and I was so frustrated. And I was, uh, in the end, I kind of realized that it didn't work, that it was too uh, fluent. It was too difficult to to grasp um, that I actually needed background and I needed um, looks just to make it possible for the reader to, to distinguish the different characters. And I remember how angry I was sitting at the, my desk and just typing oh all right she was born in and in, <laughs> and I was kind of just making up backgrounds very frustrated and and it's very funny to read it now because I can see my own anger at uh, <laughs> this one character who is brought up in an antique shop <laughs> but then it, it became very fun to to make up all these backgrounds um and some of the backgrounds are, of course, very similar to mine. I mean, the the main character is, I just kind of gave her my childhood um, or some of the characteristics of my own childhood. And so I learned a lot from that process. Um, but I think also, generally speaking, now that I am an old and and experienced writer, <laughs> I think I think that um, I like to play with that idea of... Um, how a character is supposed to be um, and how a character is supposed to be described. One of my crucial 
reading experiences was um, the Russian Daniel Karams. I'm not sure how if I pronounce it correctly. Um, but he has a, written a lot of absurdistic short prose, I would probably call it. Um, and there's a short story where he is describing a character by everything the character is not. He didn't have hair. <laughs> and it's kind of a long list of what the character doesn't have. Uh, he didn't have arms. He didn't have a stomach. Um, and in, it, I think it ends with, um, he didn't really have anything, so we better not talk about him. So, <laughs> and that was kind of the ideal description of, of a character <laughs> for, for me. So I'm, I'm, I think I'm trying to find a middle ground between that kind of complete denial of, of characterization and actually giving them um, stomachs and, and fingers. Well, a lot of characters in Evil Flowers have a kind of a strange occupation that maybe was lost in translation or, or maybe we mm. just don't have as many here. Um, mm. So many of them are analysts or they're in analysis <laughs> departments. Do you, are they like psychoanalysts like Freud or Jung or is it something else? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've just, I've, I think I've invented um, this analysis department. Um, I don't think we don't we have them in Norway. I, I would have loved that uh, if we had an analysis department we could just go to with a, any kind of problem we would have. And they, oh, you just call the analysis department and they'll fix this for you. All right, you've totally um, misrepresented Norway for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was very liberating from for myself to kind of invent them. And I hope um, I think I've I think I've invented. Um, something I can use uh, later on because I really loved the analysis department. It kind of made it so much easier for me to to breathe um, in my own fiction uh, that they would kind of comment and and have and but they're also kind of they seem very coherent. I think the analysis department could be anything really. Um, I don't remember how many texts that are put in the mouth of the analysis department in this short story collection but I, I think they are represented by different um, um, representatives <laughs> from the departments and who have different stories um, but it also it's I think it's described somewhere that it is actually an office uh, high above ground um, it's I think it's one of the texts called the Nordic scene from outside where someone in the analysis department just suddenly decides to to look at the Nordics uh, from the outside <laughs> and <laughs> and struggle to remember why they started doing that um, but I think that the analysis department is um, probably um, a new outlet um, if that is a word at all um, in my way of writing to find a way of using the meta uh, narrative of or that commenting voice that I always um, struggle to keep down and this time I just kind of brought it up and gave it a, a life of its own mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. yeah. yeah it's almost like the seat of that metafictional voice um, mm -hmm. and they're sneaky too I feel like they sneak into stories where they're not necessarily <laughs> named um, yeah. including this one that I would love for you to read. Um, one of the beauties of the very short stories you write, or flash fiction, mm. as you might call it, is that um, mm. we can read the whole thing and <laughs> won't take <laughs> up too much time. So if you could read Digressive Fit, give us a little taste of the <laughs> the analysis department in its, in its um, most annoying disguise. <laughs> yeah, I'll try. Digressive Fit. 
This bear, who was stealthily making his way toward the perfect prey, namely a deer that was standing completely still and eating, got distracted when he passed a blueberry patch. We all know how much bears love blueberries, and this was, sadly for him, a bear who was easily distracted. The fact was that he simply had to try the blueberries, and when he looked up, after a few minutes of ecstatic guzzling and discovered that the deer was gone, he hit his forehead with the heel of his paw and groaned, Oh no, not another digressive fit. He really had to stop this. He carried on through the forest with a blue nose and grumbled in irritation at the challenges his personality presented. This is all true. We who are telling you this are a cloud of midges who can read thoughts and who have often swarmed around this delightful bear. If you have ever wondered why the clouds of midges that swarm around your head while you're lying on a lounge chair trying to sunbathe, if you have ever wondered why we make that faint humming sound, it's because we're reading your thoughts. It is the sound of your own thoughts that you hear. You might want to think about that the next time you slice a kitchen knife through a cloud of midges that's swarming around you as you sit trying to cut some bread early one morning in a campsite in Finland. Thank you. <laughs> what do you like about very short stories like this? Oh, I like their shortness. <laughs> I, li- <laughs> I like. I think I like the speed, um, and I like the feeling of kind of entering into um, a whole reflection in the matter of seconds, and then swooping out again. Um, I think it's very important to to have a feeling of uh, depth, even though it's incredibly short. Um, I, mean, I speak generally now for, for short fiction that I really like to read and, and also what I'm trying to do when I write to kind of present something uh, in a flash. <laughs> and that's and that's probably the attraction for me. What I love is the balance in it, like that depth that you're talking mm. about, but also that you can kind of hold it in your hands or in your head all at mm. once, you know, whereas like a, a more traditional short story or a novel, you just need more space and things are more you know, complicated and big, whereas like, I feel like I'm in some ways, it's like looking at very good conceptual art, I can look at it and try to like, hold it in my head or in my eyes at one time and really think about, oh, shoot, the midgets. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like that description. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna steal it from you. (laughs) Feel free, feel free. Mm. Um, There are a number of more traditional short stories in this collection, too. Mm. But they share some element, I think, with these like very short flash pieces as well. You know, it's a clever perspective or this thought experiment, this big idea, but there's something very odd about it, too. The opening story, Birds, which I think is very movingly about how we choose what to devote our lives to, maybe the innocence or joy that might get lost in the process of becoming an expert. Um, in this case, it's about the study of birds. Um, and, you know, that sounds like very big and very moving, but the story also has one mm-hmm. of the most memorable and possibly the grossest opening sentence I've <laughs> ever read. I don't know how it reads in the original, but in English it is, as I sat on the toilet menstruating, a fairly large part of my brain fell down into the toilet bowl. Mm. So what comes first, you know, the brain floating in the toilet or the um, the moving idea? <laughs> uh, well, it was actually not the brain. It was the birds. Um, I was trying to create a certain zigzag structure of thought. That was 
what I was striving to do. I was trying to create short stories that would not be these perfect entities that I sometimes feel that short stories are. I wanted them to be looser and almost porous in, in the structure because I'm interested in how the mind works when it doesn't really work, when you when your mind is drifting and how you kind of associate and jump from one thought to the other. Um, so I was trying to find a form in the short story format that would allow the thoughts to drift and to kind of jump from one thought to another one and, and try to I was trying to find a zigzag way of writing if that makes sense um, and I had this idea of um, a woman who had gone home to her parents which was actually what I was doing at the time <laughs> I was uh, at um, an autumn holiday with my parents and I was listening to my father sing Handel he was rehearsing for a concert and I was just taking that into the short story that situation of my father rehearsing and I, I suddenly and I knew she was interested in birds and probably because my fathers were interested in birds and that's probably how that idea came about at all um and um and then I found the snipe uh bird by complete accident I was just doing some research and then I suddenly found out that the snipe um is the way she is lighting alighting herself um or itself in a zigzag pattern and that was when i think everything came into place uh for me and <laughs> and it created the, the structure that i was probably trying to avoid it just turned into a symbol instead uh of the zigzag movement and from there on i was pretty unsure how to to move forward until I don't know. I, sometimes you just can't explain how how these ideas just click into place. But suddenly I knew that it was while she was menstruating she would lose <laughs> she would lose the part of her brain and and I have I have had some feedback on that. It's completely relatable. Yes. <laughs> and I know I know for a fact that it's probably I I think it's uh, I think it's relatable too. So yeah, that's how it how it began. It didn't begin with our losing them brain and that just came later mm, mm-hmm. well you mm. know honestly there is just not enough menstruation in fiction <laughs> I, no I totally agree so I'm trying to amend that and I have also actually written a novel about PMS I think there's way too little PMS in uh, fiction mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well I mean that's the, I think another really enchanting thing about these stories and your work in general is that um, even though you know we've talked about this aversion of characterization a lot of these narrators feel really grounded in everyday life Um, Mm -hmm. So you have that. But then also you've got these just wild references that are just so fun to think through as a reader. We've got Baudelaire, Wolf, a Danish poet named Inger Christensen, you know, birds, analysts, slime eels. They're all sort of strewn in their like little breadcrumbs. Were you reading these writers at the time? Were you just thinking of slime eels? (laughs) Um, Well, I think that's the kind of two-sidedness when I write both the slime meals and the menstruation and the mundane and the ugly and the not so very sublime uh, matters of existence. And also at the same time, you know, the Baudelaire and Virginia Woolf belong to the so-called high culture, if that's a term. I'm just trying to kind of bring it all together and and to let them coexist. And I don't see any reason why they shouldn't, because that's 
life basically that it's um it's both very mundane and stupid but also beautiful and and sublime I think that's so fun that you say that because I think your work would count as the high culture too you know Mm. (laughs) not many people read (laughs) literature and translation in the states at least so it's you know it is sort of the high culture but at the same time Mm. there's just these like humbling or like Mm. almost like self of facing or self-deprecating bits like this little end of a story that I want to read it's the title story evil flowers and the narrator says at the end I wonder what Baudelaire would have said if he had discovered that his title had been used in a short story about the problems of sesamoid bones and sneakers going out of production and obnoxious people in gyms and made-up bus drivers and passengers I think he would have pursed his lips I think he would have had his thin hair combed over to one side I think he would have had a large silk cravat around his neck and been surrounded by darkness. I think he would have stared angrily at the camera, so angrily that he looked frightening. In fact, I think that this was what he was thinking in the author portrait from 1863, having just had a glimpse of the future and this very text, was Evil Flowers, My Ass. So what immediately follows is, of course, the portrait. And then you have the title that says a bit like this. And then immediately Mm. following, I think we have the analysis department chiming in with protest. Mm. So, you know, the the stories aren't just extra textual. They're not just gesturing outside of themselves, Mm. but they're also gesturing at each other, this kind of interference. Mm. Um, Mm. I think of it as really playful. You're sort of jolting people out of the story. Can you, I guess, can you talk a little bit Mm. about this strategy or if it's you know again maybe it's not even conscious at all I think some of it just happens in the um, in the moment I don't know where I'm going when I start writing and I think that's one of the necessary things for me is to not to not be too sure uh, when I start where I where I'm heading at if I have a plot on beforehand and if I I'm I know what every detail of the short story is or the novel is going to be then I tend to get very bored <laughs> when I when I write and I just have to, it's a matter of writing to finish it so um because I'm very interested in what happens when you write because um um the words themselves will sometimes just knock you over and just um, give you another direction that you hadn't foreseen when you started it and I think that's the kind of play that um happens just in that transition from um, from the evil, sh- um, I was going to say evil shower. I think that's going to be in my sequel. <laughs> <laughs> no, not the evil shower. <laughs> I don't have a terrible shower. I, I don't. I don't want to. I feel scared now. <laughs> evil shower. <laughs> okay, well, let's um, back to the original, which was called Evil Flowers, not Evil Showers. And when this text suddenly starts thinking about the author portrait of of Baudelaire. It's just, I don't plan for what's coming next, but I just suddenly know that his author portrait has to be the next uh, text. And then, of course, there has to be a protest because, I mean, if you've written some academic text, you know that reference is incredibly important and you can't can't just use something without a reference. Of course you can't. so the analysis department is very angry um, at the previous text, just using the photo. So, so it's kind of a dynamic that happens immediately that I don't really plan. But then afterwards, I kind of see that it happens out of necessity, which is always very strange. Um, that it's kind of 
something has kind of worked itself out and it feels sometimes almost as if I didn't have so much to do with it. And I think also about the the four short stories called The Thread. The first text, which is called The Thread One, is about an old woman lying in a hospital or care uh, home bed, um, probably just before she dies. And she is thinking and she's wanting her daughter to come and sit by her bed uh, as she is about to leave this world. And there's there are the sequels, <laughs> Thread Two, Three and Four, um, a kind of commenting on the first and also inventing new positions to tell the story from. For instance, the second text is a protest um, to the first one and, and, the, and the unhappy ending of the first. Uh, we don't like unhappy endings. I think it's something like that, uh, the narrator says. Um, we would like this to be much more happy and you have to, and they are kind of suggesting an alternative ending um, where they happen to <laughs> to make up a lion uh, who, who is entering this old woman's room. Um, but luckily f- for us and for the old woman, there's a pork chop on, on the table next to her. So the lion doesn't eat the old woman, she eats the pork chop instead. And then in, I think in the last of the four, this invented lion suddenly is um, the narrator and kind of tells her version of the story and how she felt uh, entering the room. So that's the kind of, because um, I liked what you said about kind of throwing the characters out, um, um, if I understood you correctly. And that's, I think that has to do with um, a more general comment on how short stories are supposed to be. They're not really supposed to be in four sections where different narrators are commenting on. <laughs> or of course they can be like that. So it's just, it's just, um, Again, it was a kind of a way of trying to to make a more porous structure of the of the narration, I think. I do enjoy that sort of progression in it. But I also think what's cool is that having this sort of analysis department floating and analyzing and commenting also makes the rest of the collection in a way feel like you, the author, sort of struggling with them and sort of subverting the subversion that you've set up. I'm thinking of um, White Dove Becomes Black Crow, which is uh, a short story, a shorter story, not quite flash. It's more than two pages in which the narrator sees a white dove that is sitting in front of her do exactly as it says on the tin. The white dove turns into a black crow. And then our narrator like fetches about how this, quote, rather boring and stupid transformation could have been more interesting. Like, why couldn't it have been two completely different things? And the historical symbolism was even boring, like these two birds, dove and crow, or wait, was it a raven? <laughs> and then she hears the crow again and twists her ankle. And then she says, and I love this bit, it was so painful I felt sick. I sat by the edge of the road for some time and cried with pain. I had no idea how I would get home. But the fact is that an old Volvo cruised by and picked me up, and I was driven all the way home in a green and black Volvo. The driver was very nice, and I invited him in for a cup of tea. We've been married for 20 years now and have three children and swapped the Volvo for an electric car a long time ago. We're both high school teachers. He teaches electronics, and I teach Norwegian and history. The end. <laughs> it's so good. I mean, it's, I just think this is so funny because, you know, you sort of set yourself up at this time to be like, oh, this is going to be metafiction. It's going to be great. We're going to analyze the analysis. We're going to talk about mm-hmm. all of the representation and the symbolism. And then we mm-hmm. get this sweet romantic story. The end. <laughs> was that was that Gunhild, the later sort of going in and being like, fine, she was born in an antique store and she was born in a... <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I think that's uh, Gundel the Older. <laughs> so it's uh, no, but I, I I love that one too actually, and and you read it so beautifully. I, um, but it's um, I think that's also the um, the theme is also she's been longing to see. Uh, a miracle like in the biblical stories and she's since she was a child she's been longing to see a miracle and then suddenly when she sees it she's kind of unhappy about it and i think that's i, I feel that's relatable that you're never really satisfied <laughs> and there's, and also that the transformations are they're not very sublime uh and i think she and the narrative suggests that they could have been i mean why would it have to be two birds could it have been a bird and a the bird can turn into a grown toothbrush um, instead. And and then there's the transformation that happens in her life is that she meets um, the love of her life, which is really a great transformation. But also it turns into something very um, everyday. They have a electric car and they're teachers and the end. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's kind of, I think it's... Um, it's a very short way of telling a, a life story. Mm. Um, I think it does get, though, at, at like what I think your fiction does. And maybe you could talk about this, too, which is like injecting a little bit of the the magic of transformation into the everyday or pointing out that, you know, sure, it seems boring and staid and like very common. Like there's a lot of teacher couples in Norway who drive electric <laughs> cars. But at the same time, like you're happy. Pay attention. Mm. Yeah. I think I've been interested in how mystery is kind of a wedge in the mundane uh, after all, that there is something, even though it's mundane in everyday life, um, there is something that um, goes on in all our lives that is, well, to me anyway, um, or maybe this is too a mystical um, approach, but I think that there is something in... Um, in the middle of everyday life, that is still touched with mystery of of some of some kind. I've always been very fascinated by by dreams. I mean, how we have this. I, I mean, everybody dreams, and they are for me this place where we kind of lose that successful. Yeah, I'm handling life very well. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> everyday routine uh, because in the in the dreams that that's kind of a teeming weird place uh, in all of us and I've always been interested in that and that you kind of you go to sleep and then you turn into this machine of absurdity and then you wake up and then you're the same person and you go on and you brush your teeth and you eat breakfast and you go to work and, and not just not just dreams not just uh, because they are so obvious um, absurd or hard to understand but I think there's I mean about the what about the mystery of who are you <laughs> like my when my when my editor asked me what who is she and I was like okay I'll just have to look into that then um there is kind of a um I find this a little bit hard to to admit but there is that kind of I think a bit more sentimental or or um, emotional uh, question also in in my writing, which is the kind of everyday uh, mystery about who we really are. I think you can get away with being sentimental because of all the <laughs> menstruation and the slime meals. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Phew. 
We have links in the show notes to Gunhild Oyahog's new book, Evil Flowers, as well as her other work, which is equally weird and equally lovely. I hope you're enjoying what has, as of this month, become a series of interviews with fiction writers writing in other languages. So if there are any current writers whose work you enjoy writing in another language, but who can ideally do interviews in English, shoot me a line at podcast at theamericanscholar.org and I'll give it a read. I'm always looking to be introduced to new, exciting fiction and translation, even if they don't make it onto the show. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>